Alright, for Second Corinthians, remember part one is a letter that's focused on the majority that had gone along with the church discipline that had been instituted, uh, not instituted, that had been exercised uh, towards the person that was rebuked in First Corinthians. And so we deal with a number of issues there, and it ends with a reminder to participate in the gift that had been discussed in a prior time, in a, a previous year, and so there are promises or pledges that were made for the collection of a voluntary collection, and that set of promises from the congregation is something that Paul is reminding them to keep. And so we'll consider that, and this text is interpreted in a number of ways. My goal will be to make it simple and clear. Part 2, which begins uh, in the next chapter, chapter 10, deals with those that the apostle is displeased with, those who are in the minority who have rejected the divine instruction regarding church discipline. And so we'll see a difference of tone in that letter, in that, that same letter, in, the same, in that portion of the letter. So go to page 2. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 24, is summarized for you at the top of page 2. This is an exhortation generally to be generous to those who are in need, those who are the poor. So, chapter 8, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency for the favor and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. There's a difference there in the majority text from what you may have um, in your text. The TR has that we would receive the gift and fellowship or the favor and fellowship, but that's not present in the majority text. So it just reads, imploring us with much urgency for the favor and fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, See that you abound in this grace also. So what grace is being talked about? The grace of liberality. What is liberality? Liberality is a freeness from generosity. Sorry, not from generosity, but from covetousness. Liberality is a freeness from grasping. It is holding on to things freely. It is open-handedness. It is a willingness to see that God will do what he will do and to seek to Take the things that are in your possession and to deploy them well and to use them. Now, with our possessions, we work hard to gain them, and we ought to. We are commanded to do so. Dominion is the requirement to manage property well. And we ought to work well. We ought to work hard. We ought to make sure that we are putting ourselves, our time, our capital to good and efficient use. The days are evil. We have to redeem the time. Property is limited. We have to deploy it well. And at the same time, we are not to be a grasping or slavish people. We are to be great-minded. And the greatness of mind that comes from those who can look around, that can think about taking risk and a willingness to give property to God, are those that recognize that God is sovereign over everything. And if you give a thing in obedience to God, you know that God will bring the reward. Lending to God has better return than lending to anybody else. Giving to God has a better return than anything else you can deploy your money in. Now we are called to glorify God with every red cent we have. Every nanosecond of our lives. Every fiber of our being and every cell in our bodies. We are to use all of it to the glory of God. But there is a special way in which when you take property in obedience to God and put it outside of your control to minister to others, that there is a special blessing there. And so the Apostle Paul teaches us that and calls us to liberality. 
The Macedonians were set up providentially to be a poor people, a Christian church in poverty. And they were set up to be a people who would give liberally. Think of the power of that testimony. A poor church that is generous. A poor church that gives liberally. A poor church that pours out its substance and resources for the blessings of others. It is, more, it is difficult to imagine a more dramatically powerful image than the poor giving their resources away. Lord Jesus Christ teaches us an economic principle called subjective value. There is a time when he witnessed a widow who had but a few copper coins. And she took those copper coins and she placed them into the giving box in the temple. Now, it was common for men of pomp and circumstance to put in large gifts, gold, silver, other precious things into this box and to draw attention to it, to hire heralds and blowers of trumpets to call attention to the moment of giving, thus undermining the purpose of the box. And at the same time, this widow of little note with no fanfare, except for the fanfare of the Lord Jesus Christ, is calling attention to her and capturing it forever in the scriptures to be read everywhere where the gospel is read. He said of her that she gave out of her poverty. They gave out of their abundance and that she gave more than they. Now objectively, in terms of the nominal currency, did she give more? No. But the idea is if you have one dollar, and that dollar is going to pay for your meal for the day, a dollar menu, of course, and another person has a hundred dollars, and they give a dollar, the person who only had a dollar has given of the last of their substance. They've essentially given their life bread for the day. The person who gives one out of the hundred has not given that. They have perhaps given some luxury or some other thing, or, or perhaps gone down to a less expensive meal from a more expensive meal. The loss is less serious. Now, the widow who gave of her last substance, that is not a positive example for us in, this not, in the sense that we have a duty to provide for ourselves. We should never give of the last of what we have. We are called to provide for ourselves. It's a duty that we have. And so that's not a positive example. So I'm not encouraging you to give away everything you have and have nothing to be able to provide for yourself. But there is the idea that when you have less and you give, you are giving more, and there is a greater reward for giving there. That's true of time. That's true of energy. You come home, and you are tired men, and your children want to spend time with you. They want your attention. Your wife wants your attention, and you give it even though you feel like all I want to do is lie down and close my eyes. Or find something that I can use to distract me from the troubles of the day. If you provide that service out of the little time and energy you have, you are giving more than the one who has much time and much energy and gives objectively more. Giving from poverty is more expensive. Now, this widow is also used to show the ravenous, widow-destroying nature of the apostate Jewish church, of the Pharisees, of the Sadducees, of the priest class, of the Sanhedrin, that they encouraged widows to give of their last rather than sacrificing as leaders to care for the widows. Abominable. And so there is a duty of those with strength, those with power, to give. On the other side of that, in the book of Nehemiah, which we'll get to someday, I promise it's going to happen. Keep promising Nehemiah. We'll get there. Nehemiah, on the other side, as a governor, foregoes the tax as a governor 
and forgoes the obligation to maintain his house as a part of his governor's salary and instead pays for the administration of his public duties out of his private coffers to relieve the people of a tax burden. So Nehemiah gives the positive example of what it looks like in leadership with resources and wealth to sacrifice. The Apostle Paul does the same thing. The Apostle Paul gave up all of his property, all of his station. You remember, he was a member of the highest court of Israel. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. He gave, he lost a high office, lost public honors, for, forwent his positions of wealth and ability to have income, and frequently is found to have given all the property he has, and all he's left with is his ability to make tents. Highly educated, highly honored, well-known man, student of Gamaliel, which would be equivalent to saying, like, I have a Harvard Law degree. You know, that's the type of thing that, that meant at the time. And so we find him going around, figuring out how to minister to the poor, having zero property to his name, and doing work to make property so that he doesn't have to require people that he is serving to pay him for his service. Titus has learned well from his example and sacrificially serves. And the Macedonians seem impressed by this example. And in their poverty, they give. And they are used as an example. These Christians in Macedon who are willing to give to help their brothers in Jerusalem are an example preserved for all time that the glory of the gospel and its power to make the hearts of men generous. Uh, The men of Macedon went through a great affliction and had an abundance of joy. And in that, they had the joy of giving out of their poverty and displaying liberality more magnificently than could otherwise have been done. Verse 3 talks about the idea of bearing witness that they gave according to their ability and beyond their ability. Now, what does this mean to give beyond ability? To give to the point of ability would be to give all of the excess that you have available. To give beyond ability would be to give more than what you think you have available. And again, it's sin to take resources from duties that you have in order to do things that are of lower priority. So what's not being commended here is failing to do your duties and then giving all your money away to Creflo Dollar because you're going to get a really fast return. That is not what is being commended. What is being commended is the idea of giving and working hard and seeing supernatural blessing on work as you're giving because your ability to give multiplies because God blesses it. So at no one time should you promise to give to others for their relief more than you can give while performing your immediate duties. At the same time, when you give to your ability, what happens is the Lord multiplies the blessing and causes you to receive abundantly so that you can bless more. Diligence in stewardship and giving and blessing results in an opening of the windows of heaven to pour out blessing. You go, well, that sounds like the prosperity gospel. Well, you have to deal with Paul. You have to deal with what the scriptures say. And plainly speaking, this is what 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 say. This is what other places say. I am not telling you that every single individual here who gives will get a specific multiple within a certain time frame. You might give today and die tomorrow at the hand of persecution. I am not pretending as a mechanistic thing, but this is the general tendency. This is what Proverbs says. This is what the scriptures generally say. And that's what this text says. And so what we have is Calvinists throughout the world that are grim-faced about how we're predestined to lose. That is not what's going to happen. Calvinism and postmillennialism and the general tenor of the law, which has temporal blessings associated with its application makes it so that we should be 
chipper soldiers that can sing psalms on the way to victory, chopping down idols with axes as we skip. It gives us the power and the presence to be able to give generously and be liberal in the sense of being free-handed, open-handed, quick to give, knowing that God will multiply. Now, the alternative is that you can interpret this as saying that these people, the Macedonians, gave to their ability and also promised beyond what they were actually capable of, and they robbed Peter to pay Paul. Literally Paul here, because they promised it to Paul. And actually, the funny thing is they're going to give it to Peter because he's in Jerusalem. So, but they're robbing somebody if they don't have the ability, right? If you've got, like, I owe Cletus the tent maker you know, two denarii, and I'm not going to pay him, Instead, of what I'm going to do is I'm going to give it to Paul so he can deliver it to Jerusalem. Not okay. That is not what is being said here. Now, furthermore, there's the explicit explanation as we get further into the chapter, and it says you reap what you sow in quantity as well as quality. Right? So that's the general principle. And the idea that there's a prayer for God to give abundantly so that we can give abundantly. Is the apostle sinfully praying that? Okay, so what's the difference between what I'm saying and the prosperity gospel? The prosperity gospel says if you've got enough faith, it's going to guarantee that you're going to avoid persecution and you're going to get riches. What am I saying? If you have enough faith, you might manage to work yourself to death. You might manage to get enough persecution that they kill you. But God's going to generally multiply the effect of what you do, and he's going to give you resources, honor, and following in this life, in most cases, if you diligently apply your faith. And there will be rewards in the next life. That's the difference. The prosperity gospel is mechanistic and short-term. The biblical idea of you reap what you sow is not mechanistic in this life, though it generally results in positive things in this life. But it is guaranteed, you might even call it mechanistic, in the next life. Now, the idea of the freely giving. The Old Testament has this concept of the free will offering. The Old Testament has a tithe. I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to prove the tithe today. But this is not talking about the tithe. And we should give the tithe generously, but this is not talking about the tithe. The tithe is an ordinance that we see back with Abraham. We see it with Jacob. We see it referred to in Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, it talks about how Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. And in Abraham, Levi tithed to Melchizedek. And so therefore, the practice of tithing is not merely a Levitical thing, but it is an Abrahamic thing. It is a Melchizedekian thing. And we have the priesthood of Melchizedek. The book of Hebrews teaches that. And the book of Genesis teaches us that it is a pre-Levitical order ordinance. When we talk about free will offerings, the idea is giving something beyond what you were obligated to give in the law by name. It's giving something extra. Free will offerings can be vows where you give something and you're seeking God's blessing in the giving of it. It can be giving something apart from having vowed and just giving it. It can be making a pledge to somebody else and then fulfilling that pledge. The example that's given here, when we think about the people from Macedon, they first gave themselves to God, then they gave themselves to the apostolic band, and then they gave the money. What does that mean? How do you give yourself to God in an offering? By vowing. You privately promise God that you will do such a thing. 
How do you give yourself to others in terms of property? You promise them that you're going to give it. Which is the premise of what Paul is writing in these couple of chapters mostly. He keeps talking about fulfilling the thing that they've been boasting about. Was Paul just going around saying, you know, the Corinthians didn't promise to do anything, but I bet they're going to do it, and then try to shame them into it? Like, was that what Paul did? He was like, Corinthians didn't promise anything, but they're going to be so generous. It's going to be amazing. Watch them. They're the most generous people on the planet. And then try to guilt them into it? Was that what he did? No. He talks about a prior communication about a collection where commitments were made. So the Macedonians vowed to God that they would give something, promised to the apostolic band that they would give something, and then fulfilled the promise. The Macedonians begged to have the blessing, the favor, and the joining into the work, the fellowship of ministering to the saints. The people in Jerusalem were undergoing persecution, and they were lacking property. You know why they were lacking property? Do you remember how in Jerusalem, Jesus said, within a generation, this whole place is going to be destroyed? Do you remember how the church in Jerusalem, in response to that, not only did they generally deal with the diaconal mercy giving, but the way they dealt with the mercy giving was by selling off capital assets like real estate and then giving that money to put it at the feet of the apostles to help with needs. What happens after, I don't know, a decade when everybody you know has sold off all their capital assets to try to help everybody else? What happens after 10 years, 15 years, 25 years? What happens there? Nobody has any capital. Nobody's making any money. Everybody's poked. They're not just poor. They're poor. They cannot afford to cover their basic necessities. And as a result, they need help from outside. So what's happening in Jerusalem is persecution, having sold off capital goods, they have no internal resources for the flow of capital except for labor. And when you are a hated minority, what kind of a market do you think there is for your labor? A cheap one. So this is the problem for them. And so Paul is going around to the Gentile churches and the churches of the diaspora trying to collect support. And he's getting promises so they can start to rely upon it because their mercy ministry has to make plans past like, you know, five minutes from now. They have to be able to figure out things. So in those particular times, they're getting pledges. And not everybody has all the money they can send right away, right? They have to Think about what it is that they believe they are able to give. And so they make pledges. Verse 8. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The Lord Jesus Christ takes on humanity. He goes through his humiliation. And that's a type of poverty. And what he does is he raises us up. It's very similar to what you may recall Miss Marsh brought to, Mrs. Marsh brought to many of our attention in the Puritan thread. The Lewis quote, The Son of God became man that the sons of men may become sons of God. Right There's that poverty, wealth theme. Now, Christ's example, Christ's poverty, is to make us heirs of all things. There is no commandment to give a certain amount beyond the tithe here. And at the same time, we do know that there are commandments, there are obligations in the Scriptures that certain circumstances make it our duty to help. The church is not to impose specific amounts for collective causes, but it is to ask when there's some collective cause that needs to be dealt with. This would be a really fantastic time if I had like a building campaign or something to try to pitch to you, right? But I don't. 
This also creates in the diligence of others a sort of competitive virtue cycle. The diligence of the Macedonians and the diligence of Titus in the collecting work are things that encourage giving. When others diligently give, it should encourage diligent giving on the part of others. It creates a virtuous cycle. If you are running and you have somebody running with you, you will tend to want to go faster than them. If you are lifting and you're lifting with somebody else, you typically want to lift more than they are lifting. And if you are giving and you somebody else is giving, people typically want to give more than the other guy. That can be pure pride or it can be spurring each other on to good works. And brothers, I want to see a culture of spurring each other to good works. Right now, we don't have so much a need for the giving of money as we have a need for the giving of service. There is a need for men to work. There is a need to do things, to seek to do things. There is more on my plate and more on David Schaefer's plate than we have time in the day to do. And so if you have hours to give, please volunteer them. That's the giving campaign I want to see. And what will happen is you will find that the Lord blesses you. Ladies, help your men by freeing their plates as much as you can as Proverbs 31 women so that they are able to free themselves for public service. Men, don't waste that on video games and wasting your time. Do useful things. Find service. Find opportunity to do things. Children, do you want to give to the Lord and be rewarded? Do you want now, as six-year-olds or nine-year-olds or twelve-year-olds, to be able to store up accruing interest, compounding interest, in the bank of the Lord Jesus Christ? where he will give you rewards from your youth on the day of judgment and blessings throughout your life as long as you tarry on the land. Then find ways to do chores and to take up work. Look to watch diligently when your parents teach you to do things that you might help them with the work. The example of Christ is given to us in His giving up riches to become poor to make us rich. Page 3. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago. How does He know they desired to do it a year ago? Because they told Him. Paul's not like reading their mind. He's not like, I think you wanted to pledge this a year ago? Six, six months ago. Sorry, I misspoke. Okay, yes, I'm seeing nods. That was the thing. He is not doing that. What he's doing is he's saying, we spoke about this and you told me this. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it. You made the promise, keep the promise. You made the promise, keep the promise. But now you also must complete the doing of it. That as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. I've heard manipulative ministers say, if you even, for instant, in your heart wanted to give to some particular thing, you're now obligated to, so that's the equivalent of a vow. So let me tell you, if you just for an instant thought in your mind I'd really like to help in this particular way, you're not obligated to do it. You're not. You need to evaluate it. You know when you're obligated to do it? If you promise to God to do it. Or if you promise to a person to do it. If there's some free will offering of time or resources, if you have not made a promise, there is no obligation. But once you promise it, there's an obligation. I hope that's freeing for you if you've ever heard any of that type of preaching where there's this idea that just in desiring it, just intending it in your mind for a moment makes some sort of obligation. It doesn't.
Now, if you make a pledge and then you don't have the resources to keep it, the Lord frees you from that. You give what you have. So you pledge somebody $100, you've only got $50, you give the 50 and you explain to them, I do not have it, I am sorry. You can ask them to release you from the remainder or you can tell them you'll get it to them when you've got it. But that's what you do. Okay, you make known the circumstance. You give what you are able. You ask the Lord to give you strength to be able to fulfill. Verse 13. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Now, the idea here that we should not be eased and others burdened, or we should not be burdened and others eased. Now, the strong are to bear with the weak. The strong are to bear with the weak. That bearing with the weak is a sort of a free will offering in the sense that nobody's able to really enforce it, right? Because nobody's able to be like, I can see in your soul you got a lot of strength, so I'm going to make you bear with this particular offense or this particular weakness or this particular failing. But the extent to which we recognize strength, we should bear with weakness. And when people are in public office, for example, that's a statement that there's some sort of strength there, so there's obligations to bear with all sorts of things. Boy, let me tell you. Now, the reality is that we are each given different blessings and different weaknesses. We all have weaknesses and we all have blessings and strengths. The distribution of labor, the division of labor, the carving up of things, the giving of material blessings to help others, the giving of spiritual blessings to help others, hospitality and generosity, mercy ministry, public offices, private ministry, and the helping that occurs in many ways is a mechanism by which there is a distribution of spiritual and material goods, not by coercive power redistributing wealth, but by voluntary service, taking blessings and distributing them across the church and bringing blessing. If you have and you give, you will get more. In this life, probably. The next life, for sure. Using your gifts of whatever variety, again, time, talents, effort, energy, money, giving any of it in service, is something that results in, when it's done in faith to the glory of God, according to the commandment of God, it brings blessing to you. It creates a sort of short-term equality by distributing out blessing, and it creates a longer-term inequality. It creates a longer-term inequality. To those who have, more will be given. To those who have not, even what they have will be taken away. If you manage well, you are given more, right? Ten talents turns into ten cities. So there is here, now, need and suffering. And the use of gifts now helps people with their suffering and weakness now. Verse 15, as it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. This is a reference to Exodus 16, where the manna came from heaven, and some people tried to really pack it in, and they didn't have any difference in what they had, versus the people who just kind of sparingly collected a little bit. God ended up making it so they all had enough. What is the analogy here? Manna from heaven, gifts from heaven. We are all given gifts from heaven, and God is going to make it so that those gifts get distributed for the blessing of his people. 
When the wicked pile up silver-like mountains, who's it for? It's for the righteous. If God gives us resources, what are we going to do with them? If you're a Christian and you've got lots of resources, what are you going to do? You're going to use it to bless other people. You're not just going to sit there and eat off the pile. You're not just going to fill up your barn and waste your life and sit there consuming from it. You're going to deploy it. You're going to be useful. And that deploying of resources to help other people, to create businesses, to give jobs, to supply people in their want, to care for people for their immediate consumption when they don't have, to care for orphans and widows, to be able to support the planting of churches, to be able to do all sorts of useful things, that work is the deployment of capital. And, you know, you're not just taking it all and consuming it. You're putting it to use to bless others. So, if you don't use your resources to bless other people, you know what happens. It dwindles away. Fools and their gold are soon parted. He who gains quickly loses quickly. And if you don't know how to deploy, if you don't use something to bless other people, if you don't find good work to do with the capital you have, it will dwindle away or skyrocket away. It'll find a way to run away. And so if you gather a ton, but then don't use it in such a way as to help others, you will find that you end up with little. Now, the exceptions to this, occasionally you find in history grand misers who pile up silver-like mountains. Maybe not instantly, but in the long run. First of all, if they're not believers, believe me, it wasn't worth it. Secondly, Ultimately, the piling up of wealth, even by misers, is used to bring about dominion work and to cause things to be done that does bless God's people. When somebody builds a road in a pagan country, someday a missionary is going to go down it. If we give to others, we do ease their burdens in the short term. And we do take on a burden. But we take on that burden not for the mere sake of taking on the burden. We take on the burden because it's going to give us a greater weight of glory. I'm sure many of you have had many opportunities. I have had opportunities to figure out how to make it so that you could sit at ease. That is not the good life. It is not a joyful life. It is a boring life. A good life is the life of increasing obligation, increasing responsibility, increasing resourcing, the deploying of those resources, working with others, having other people rely upon you, and you relying upon them. The life of adventure is not ultimately going around by yourself, zooming in and out of places. That is lonely, and experiences become boring. It is caring about the other immortal souls that work beside you, that rely upon you, and who also you rely upon for the glory of God, the eternal mind, the three eternal minds. And there is an outpouring of treasure when wisdom is given to you, and this is the path, this path of work is the path that puts pressure on you to have to figure it out. If we were left by ourselves in a room full of books, we'd find a way to play some stupid app on our phones. But if we are left with many other people who are overwhelmed with problems and we have too much work to do, we will scramble around looking for the book that has the answer to our problem. Isn't it ironic that it requires too much work to do to make us study to figure out how to deal with the problem. Page four. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. Titus cares for the Corinthians. How does he care for the Corinthians? He's not caring for the Corinthians by bringing money to them. He's coming to the Corinthians to care for them by asking them to pay what they've promised. That's got to be the most fun ministry job ever. What's your job? I'm the pastor of asking people to pay up. 
And so he is sent, Titus is sent, to ask the Corinthians to pay what they promised. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. And here's the other thing. He saw a duty and he was worried that the Corinthians weren't storing up the way they were supposed to to fulfill the promises they made. So he started to push on them. Hey, wait a second. If you don't change your behavior, you're not going to be able to keep the pledges that you made. And so he did it of his own accord. He didn't require a commission to do it. He just did it. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And not only that, but who was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift, which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord Himself and to show your ready mind, avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift, which is administered by us, providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. So Titus is diligent in seeking to deal with the mercy work, Titus is diligent in exhorting people to do what they promised. And Titus is along with another guy who's getting praise in the New Covenant administration for doing the work that's required in the New Covenant of collecting money from the saints to bless other saints who are in more need. And this guy, he is chosen to manage the material and to deal with a particular mercy mission. Okay, so choosing men to deal with material is what deacons are generally done with. And when you send men, they're called messengers, and we're going to see this later. There's a, down in, in verse 23, there's messengers, but the little reward is apostles. So we'll talk about that in a little bit here. But the idea of there are people who are sent as messengers to go between churches. So that's a public office. Now, honorable intentions of the sight of God are invisible until they're made visible to the men. How does that happen? Promises and actual fulfillment of promises. They are made honorable by external actions in the sight of men. If we're going to accomplish anything useful, we're going to make promises to each other, and we're going to try to fulfill them. Here's one of the things that's interesting, though, about promises. Are you God? Me either. So when you make promises to fulfill, are you guaranteed to be able to do it? No. So we take risk when we make promises. And the entrepreneurial spirit, the ability to make stuff happen, comes down to trying to rationally calculate what you think you can do, making promises to do it, and selling off or giving off those promises and then you work like crazy to try to make it happen. If you have a job, somebody's doing that and expecting that they can pay you. Now, that happens with giving, and that happens with promises, that happens with entrepreneurial activity, that happens whenever you're trying to make something happen that hasn't happened yet. And the willingness to take on that burden, you can take on promises and then feel no pressure at all to fulfill and then you don't get any of them done. You can take on promises and feel pressure to fulfill and then you try real hard. Great. That's how stuff happens. And there are some people who are too afraid to make any promises and so they don't make any promises about doing anything and they do very little. You don't want to overpromise knowingly, and you don't want to underpromise and never promise. What you want to do is you want to try to figure out what you can commit to, and you try to commit to less than that, but not too little. You know stuff's going to come up, and then you try to fulfill. That is how things get done. And that is how men take on responsibility. Men, if you aren't carrying any weight, you're not going to do very much. If you feel loaded down, do you know what that is? That is the work of the Lord making you stronger. Taking responsibility feels heavy. 
it ought to because it's your job to fulfill it. And God will give you strength. Pray. Make commitments to do what God commands, not frivolous promises. And fulfill it. You know what marriage is? For a man, marriage is a promise to provide and protect until he dies. It's a pretty big commitment. It's a promise to teach and correct until he dies. To pray for and self-sacrificially serve until he dies. And most men can't handle becoming all that mature without marriage. Having children is a promise to provide and protect until they leave and cleave. They promise to teach and correct until they leave and cleave. To pray for and self-sacrificially serve until they leave and cleave. That's a heavy thing, not only for the men, but for the women. And women, when you get married, you're promising to work beside and to help and to submit, to honor. That's a heavy burden. What if he's not honorable? Later. And so these things, these difficulties, these promises are the things that weigh us down and they are the things that God gives us strength to fulfill. He gives us strength to fulfill. Verse 22. And we have sent with them our brother whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence which we have in you. If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Men, what men that you know would say to you, this man is my partner and fellow worker. He carries the yoke with me. He pushes it forward. He helps the blade to cut the ground and it's not just me. I'm not the only one pulling weight. He's doing it too. What men? I'm asking you on your paper in front of you right now, write down what men would say that of you if they were asked. You want there to be at least a few men who would say that of you. Wives and husbands together ought to be to each other, yokemates that are carrying forward weight. You know what church covenants are about? We have the duty to carry yokes together. We are covenanted together to carry forward the work that has been given to us of teaching the doctrine to fill the earth with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. To see the work of worship done and to see right government maintained. We are sworn brothers to carry forward that work. Verse 23, If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches. They are apostles of the churches. Now, I have seen groups... For example, there's a, there's a group called Sovereign Grace Ministries. It's not the same as Sovereign Grace Bible in town. Sovereign Grace Bible in town, pretty solid church. Sovereign Grace Ministries, problematic. Here is one of the things they have. They have a group called an Apostolic Council. If you push them on it, what they will say is, this is what they used to say and this is what they used to have, they will say, we mean little a apostles. And the response is, and I'm sure that's not confusing to the average churchgoer at all. somebody wants to call themselves an apostle, there's a problem. You can try to have a footnote or an asterisk that says, we mean little a apostles in the sense that it's used in 1 Corinthians 23, sorry, 1 Corinthians, what is this, 8, 23. Okay, they can say, we mean, we're talking about 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23. We mean apostle little a in that way, messengers. Great. Why don't you just say messengers? Why don't you just say something that's less confusing? 
Because here's the reality. That ministry, for example, they claim continuationism. They came to believe that, that the gifts of revelation continue. And so, particularly in charismatic circles, in Pentecostal circles, we have people fraudulently running around calling themselves apostles. So, could you see how some council that tries to govern multiple local churches that call themselves apostles could be interpreted in a charismatic or Pentecostal context as you claiming the continuing office of apostle with revelatory authority? Okay, so there's an example of a dangerous use of that. So I don't want to see anybody using this word messenger that's literally apostle and throwing around the word apostle in light ways because it's totally useless, unhelpful, and destructive in our time to use that. So the translation here is great, calling it messengers. The idea here is you have a person who's obligated to carry a message from one church to another church, and you see that in terms of direct ministry from church to church, and you also see that when there are churches that do not have enough elders to send to councils. They choose men for a temporary appointment to fill the shoes of what an elder would have done and they send them and call them messengers. So that is what this teaches us for a continuing thing. If we want to send somebody to go do some ministry, we can commission them as messengers temporarily to bless another church. Secondly, if we did not have enough officers to send to a council to represent the number of people we need to represent, we could send an officer and a messenger. Okay, that's the devolving authority methodology. Twenty-four. Therefore, show to them before the churches the proof of your love and of your boasting on your behalf. Show the gift before the churches because it's a public gift to a public body. And one guy getting up and being like, look what I have given to the church. Not good. Okay? A church collecting and then sending as a church to another church and publicly saying the church of Puritan Reformed Church in Phoenix, Arizona gives to whatever this gift, that would be appropriate because it shows the love of the saints for the saints without trying to gather glory for any one person. It's giving the glory to the church, which is the bride of Christ to show the testimony of Christ. It gives glory to Christ. So that's what's being said here is fulfill your promises so that the church will be given honor and his testimony. So, chapter 9, verse 1. Now, concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. For I know your willingness, about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago. So Greece was ready to give a year ago. And your zeal has stirred up the majority. So the promises that the Corinthian church gave was something that the Greeks delayed giving because the Corinthians asked for time to pay and the promise of the Corinthians and the promise of the Greeks was used to go around to other churches to tell them, look at this. So they have the Macedonians and the Greek churches and the Corinthian church is one of those churches. And so Paul and the Apostolic Band are going around getting collection to give to Jerusalem and using the promises that have been made to show, look, your brothers and the other churches want to do this. Strive. Run faster. Lift more. Do good works. Right? This is a stirring up for good works. And at the same time, the gift that could have come from Greece was delayed because Corinth asked for the delay. Greece could have given the money a year ago. They are waiting because of the pledge of Corinth. That's because transportation is expensive. And it would be way better to send it all at once rather than to split it up into two trips. Having to send a bunch of people, a bunch of distance, with a bunch of stuff. And FedEx's prices were a lot higher back then. So, concerning ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness, about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago. And obviously Corinth is a part of Achaia. And your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready. So in other words, you made the promise, make sure you're ready on time. 
Paul's laying on a little bit thick here. I mean, don't you think? Like, he's like, let's do the thing, guys. Do the thing you promised. Do it on time. Okay? Protestants are known for clocks and calendars and careful accounting. They get it from Paul. Verse 4, lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Right? It'd be really embarrassing for you guys if after telling everybody about your promise that we're really confident you keep, you didn't keep it. Just laying it on thick. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. Now, as we look at this, you go, okay, wow, this really is laying on thick. Why? Because in the letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, he makes a passing explanation in chapter 16 about, hey, make sure you do the collections on the Lord's Day and collect the stuff ahead of time so that when we get there, we don't have to worry about trying to get all the collection. We're a couple letters down the road, and somebody has said to Paul, yeah, Paul, you know that collection that we talked to you about and we promised the stuff for? It kind of seems like maybe we're not going to fulfill on those. And so he's going, whoa, I'm sorry. Perhaps we were not clear before. When you were promising to do this, you were promising, unless you were unable, that you would do it. So if it is inconvenient for you, it is regrettable that you did not consider that at the time that you promised to do it. That is what he's doing here. Do not take a vow rashly and then later say, you know, I've been thinking about that vow that I made. No, no, no. You think about the vow before you make the vow. Afterwards is the time for doing. Before is the time for thinking. You make the vow, your attention goes to how do I fulfill? And then you try mightily to fulfill. Now, verse 6. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Do you want to reap abundantly in this life? Then giving abundantly is what you want to do. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So, this is both a matter of quantity and quality. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Again, this is purposing in the heart in terms of once you've made a commitment, so you're vowing to God. Not grudgingly or of compulsion or necessity. So this is not the tithe. This is not obligatory giving. This is something that you voluntarily chose to commit to. Make sure once you've committed to do it, that you do so cheerfully. Why? For God loves a cheerful giver. Now, if your takeaway here is, yeah, I should probably just not make any promises. Let me remind you what we've already said. The good life is the life of increasing responsibility. Taking on responsibility looks like making promises. And, if you choose to take on responsibility, make sure to fulfill it. And fulfill it cheerfully. Men, happy warriors. Women, happy warriors. Children, happy warriors. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work, we can promise and we can strive mightily to give and we can know the God that owns everything, that has infinite resource. That God is the God who will supply us with everything we need. We worry about the lawful promises that we make and our inability to keep them. But is God able to keep His promises? We've just been told here, make good promises. Make lawful promises. When you make them, fulfill them. And you know what? God is able to make all grace abound toward you, 
that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, always, all sufficiency, all things, may have an abundance for every good work. The Lord gives us our daily bread. And if you're a king, your daily bread might be a table where you have to feed a thousand people. If you have a payroll to meet, that might be a bunch of people. You've got to make sure you get bread on the table. If you make some promise to fulfill some good work, that's daily bread. We can pray for God to give us our daily bread. Dare to do great things and expect God to give you what you need to do it. As it is written, He is dispersed abroad. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. That's Psalm 112, verse 9. This is what the righteous man does. Verse 10. Now, may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. God's the one that gives you capital that you can invest. Seed to sow. God's the one that puts bread on your table so you have food to eat today. He's the one that provides capital. He's the one that gives daily bread. And so here's the prayer. May he who supplies the capital and he who provides the stuff for immediate consumption supply and multiply the capital you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. When you do good works, God uses it to yield fruit. You know, you sell your time, many of you, to get something. You get wages. You do that, and that good work, that selling of time, is a good work, and the wages you bring into your own house are fruits of that righteous work. When you do dominion work by faith, for the glory of God, it's a righteous work, and your paycheck is a fruit of that. When you take some of that and you put it into savings, you invest it in something, that's sowing. When you give to the poor, when you're generous in private, when you tithe, when you give a free will offering, when you do a righteous work, when you're hospitable, you are sowing seed. When you pay for children's education and books to buy and books to hand out, when you do these things, you are investing and God provides fruit. He is the one that supplies. While you are enriched in everything for all liberality, He gives us riches that we might be liberal with it. Which causes thanksgiving through us to God. That makes the people we are liberal to give thanks. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. But God does this and He does it for His glory. He gives us abundantly so that we can then minister to others. This is deacon turned into a verb. So that we can deacon to others. Right, we all minister to each other. We all bless each other. And as we do that, the result is that people give thanks because they as saints have had their needs met. And they give praise to God. Giving first to the saints so that they can give thanks to God. And when you give to others... You do it in the name of Christ that they might come to conversion and they might give thanks to God. Verse 13. While through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ. Okay, the, the proof, the evidence of ministry helps people to believe that the confession is credible so they can give glory to God. Your good works of every kind are a payment to cause people to see the credibility of the confession of faith that we have. And for your liberal sharing with them and all men. Right, so now it's not just to the saints, but it's to men of every kind, every station and nation, in the name of Christ. And by their prayer for you, right, they then pray for you and that pours out blessing for you. You get supplied by the prayers of others. When you help somebody, any of you that I've helped, in any way, does that encourage you to pray for me? If you help me, do you think that reminds me, encourages me to pray for you? 
when we help each other, do you think other people have the same response that we have to each other when we're doing that? And so that desire to pray for each other, as we bless each other and fulfill, and there's prayers that go, there is this spreading out of blessing across the church. Giving encourages prayer. And giving should come with prayer. Well, through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. And by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Do you see how when you're generous, when you're liberal towards others, and it generates their prayer, it also causes them to have a stronger desire for your well-being. And if you are in need, do you think they will not pick up the phone? There is a way in which blessing others brings blessing from God, prayer from others, and a willingness to help from others. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. This gift can be described. He's just been describing it. We we read a lot of words describing the gift. It was a promised gift. It's a gift that they should fulfill. It's a gift of money. These are things that describe it. So what do we mean by indescribable? The point here is that this is a gift that cannot be sufficiently extolled. It can be described, but not completely. It can be pointed out as a blessing, but the blessedness of it, the way in which it glorifies God, is something that requires more than we are able. There is an infinite number of ways that God uses every good work to glorify himself. How is that? You do one good work today, and it has effects across the rest of time. That good work results in you receiving some reward that's an eternal weight of glory, and that's going to go on forever. The network effect of the good works, the removal of curse, the adding of blessing. Now, later on, we'll talk about application when we talk about the things uh, during the meal. But I want to open up the floor, comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. 